Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Uh, we'll be back in just a few seconds uh, to talk about President Biden's pledge to stop American support for the war in Yemen, Saudi's war in Yemen, and, and what just happened to that pledge, because not much has happened. Uh, please don't forget the donate button. Uh, we can't do this without you. Subscribe if you're on YouTube, if you're listening on podcasts, all the podcast platforms. Come on back to the website where you can donate. And uh, most importantly, get on our email list. Be back in just a few seconds. In a September 2021 article by Anel Sheline and Bruce Rydell, they wrote, when Joe Biden included ending the war in Yemen as a key goal during his first foreign policy speech as president, he was breaking with his predecessors. Donald Trump had backed the Saudis and the Emirates, even using a presidential veto to stymie a congressional attempt to end U.S. involvement in the war. When Mohammed bin Salman, then Saudi defense minister, launched his military intervention in Yemen in 2015, Barack Obama decided to provide assistance, a Faustian bargain aimed, unsuccessfully, at tempering Saudi criticism of the Iran nuclear deal. Biden's decision to prioritize Yemen by appointing a special envoy, as well as reversing Trump's designation, designation before leaving office of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, raised hopes that a greater emphasis on diplomacy from the U.S. might finally move the devastating war towards resolution. Yet almost eight months later, little has changed. Well, that was back in September, and now we're a few months ahead, and still nothing much has changed, except maybe it's getting worse. In a joint statement, the United Nations Special Envoy and the Humanitarian Coordinator warned last week that January will almost certainly be a record-shattering month for civilian casualties in Yemen. Now joining us is Anel Sheline, who's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute, and Trita Parsi, the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And now, why don't why don't you kick us off? Uh, first of all, give some basic context. Why is this war? Why are the Saudis in Yemen to begin with? I, I know it's complicated, but a lot of the viewers, uh, you know, aren't up up to speed or have forgotten. Uh, so give us some of the basic background and, and why does this never seem to end? Well, your intro was great, as you mentioned. Well, it was know, great because I just read you. <laughs> I read your article. <laughs> you wrote you wrote the intro, so that's why it was great. Go, go on. Well, you, you picked out some important context. I know it can seem very complicated. I'm sure perhaps some of your viewers have, they're aware that Yemen is in crisis and it pops up, but it, it's sort of unclear why is it in the headlines most recently. Um, the, the reason it's in headlines now is because we have seen an escalation in violence. We've seen the Houthis firing missiles and drones at the UAE, and they had, they had essentially ceased doing that after the UAE withdrew most of their forces militarily at the end of 2019. And now that the UAE has gotten reinvolved, we're seeing an escalation. The Houthis essentially saying, back off the way you were before and we'll leave you alone. Um, 
Let me just add, just quickly, are we fairly, is there fairly definitive evidence it actually was the Houthis that fired that missile? There is fairly definitive evidence that it was the Houthis. You know, this this came up also with the attacks on Abqaiq, the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia that the Houthis claimed, although ultimately it was decided that it was more likely that that probably came from Iran, although my understanding is the jury is still out there. But, you know, essentially the part of why the U.S. is so concerned about this is because these the missile that was launched was targeting or, or could have potentially hit U.S. service members stationed at the Al-Dafra Air Force Base near Abu Dhabi in the UAE. And so this is why we might see the Biden, the Biden administration reverse their position. So one of the first things Biden did when he came into the White House was to lift the designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. That was one of the last things Trump had done. And the concern there was just that it was going to have a devastating humanitarian impact and also that it wouldn't necessarily affect the Houthis' ability to fight their war all that much just because they are not um, particularly plugged into sort of the international economic system. I mean, you know, the fact that they're designated doesn't necessarily affect them. What it would affect would be the ability of humanitarian organizations to interact with them legally in a way that they could distribute aid to the 25 million Yemenis that live in territory that is controlled by the Houthis. And again, why you see periodically these horrifying images of, of starving Yemeni children, uh, 16 million Yemenis are, are very much at, at risk of death from starvation right now. Um, and that would get worse if we did see the, the Biden administration decide to shift, to, to reverse their position and redesignate the Houthis. But they might do it, given that the Houthis are now um, targeting U.S. service members in places like the UAE. The UAE has requested this. Saudi Arabia would certainly like that. Um, but then that would place responsibility for the deaths of all these Yemenis squarely on the shoulders of the Biden administration, when in fact the Houthis themselves are quite responsible for, for much of the devastation that we see in Yemen. It's it's the Saudi blockade, but it, I, I want to be clear that the Houthis are also... Um, they're not they're not good guys here. They're doing horrible, horrible actions. And if the U.S. were to take all this blame, the Houthis could just blame the U.S. for it instead of the fact that, no, the Houthis are themselves responsible for much of the misery that Yemenis are suffering. Uh, Trito, what business have the Saudis got being in Yemen anyway? I mean, why and why is are they so committed to this? Well, this is one of the projects of MBS uh, when he was ascending as crown prince and taking over more and more power. He's made it his pet project. It was supposed to make him a hero. It's fascinating to see the kind of uh, memes that were being shared on Saudi Twitter, clearly by uh, government uh, uh, bots, uh, in which he was really lionized as the hero that will be, you know, salvaging uh, Saudi uh, dignity and, and, and dominance in Yemen. But and now, of course, the Houthis are attacking Saudi territory, but it's a, a factor of, I think, roughly eight to one in which the, the Saudis are hitting the Yemenis far, far more than the Houthis are hitting, hitting Saudi. Bottom line is, no, they don't have much of the business of conducting this type of war. Does Saudi have legitimate interest in Yemen in terms of being a neighbor? Of course it does. But that interest does not justify the type of interference, particularly not uh, the type of uh, kinetic interference that the Saudis have conducted. Moreover, the question is, what business does the United States have in all of this? And frankly, 
we don't have any real interest uh, in this. We should not be on the side of the Houthis, nor should we be on the side of the Saudis. Uh, if anything, to the extent that the United States should be involved, it should be to help bring an end to this uh, conflict, which unfortunately we lack the diplomatic capability of doing so right now because we have decided once again to take the side of a party and, and be a belligerent. But we have another way of ending that war, and that is to simply stop selling these weapons to the Saudis, something that the Biden administration claimed that they would do. But now we know quite clearly that this loophole that they created for themselves by saying that they're going to end all offensive weapon sales essentially means that critical weapon sales continue to flow to the Saudis, $650 million just approved by Congress. And as a result, we also have seen that after that, a significant increase in the Saudi operations. The Saudis view that arms sales as a green light for the Saudis to continue to bomb Yemen into small pieces. Uh, now, uh, you said the uh, Houthis are also responsible for some of the humanitarian uh, crisis or issues. And I guess that's going to be true in a civil war, no matter what. But the, it's not the underlying issue here, is that the Saudi intervention in Yemen is, is out and out illegal. I mean, under the UN Charter, Yemen would have to be an, a, a, an imminent threat to Saudi Arabia to justify an intervention. And obviously they weren't. This is practically colonial, what the Saudis are doing. Am I right? You are, but but it's really quite disappointing the role that the UN has played here because so don't want to get too much into the background on Yemen, but the the previous president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, agreed to step down after months and months of protests. This was back in the context of the Arab Spring, so 2011, 2012. He steps down. His deputy, who was never in fact elected, but was sort of put in place through the support of the Saudis. He was then ousted when the Houthis took over the capital city of Sana'a. And then that precipitated the Saudi intervention. And then almost immediately, the UN authorized the Saudi intervention under the auspices of UN Security Council Resolution 2216, which remains the operating framework uh, under which the international community engages on Yemen. And this essentially, reflects the, the sentiments of the UN at the time, which was that the Houthis were to blame and the Saudis were legitimately involved to try to reinstate President Hadi and continue the democratic transition in Yemen. However, the, those, and those terms essentially required the Houthis to give up all territory that they had acquired and to give up their weapons, which already is, is a non-starter. Yemenis are some of the most heavily armed people in the world. This is just part of what it means to be Yemeni. Um, and so the, the terms for negotiations were something that the Houthis were never going to agree to. And at the time that they were established, there was this belief, as, as Trita was mentioning, that the Saudis would be able to go in. And three weeks later, the, this ragtag group of rebels would have been defeated and, and MBS could emerge victorious and demonstrate why he was a good candidate to become crown prince, which he ultimately became anyway. Um, instead, what we've seen is what happens so frequently when you have a foreign invader devastating the local population, even though many of those local people may not actually love the, the group that claims to be fighting on their behalf, there, there's a, a nationalist sentiment that coalesces behind them because, of course, people, this sort of internal Yemeni fight of who's going to control Yemen, is it the Houthis? Is it, we also have secessionist forces in the South that would like the, the independence of South Yemen to be reestablished. 
you have all of these competing groups. And, and the reason we continue to see such a long running war in Yemen is not so much necessarily that the Yemenis cannot figure this out for themselves, it's that we're seeing this inflow of foreign resources, of weapons and money from the Saudis, from the UAE, from the US being involved in this and continuing to sell weapons here, the UK, France, that, that the, the permanent members of the UN Security Council are competing with each other for these lucrative military contracts to continue selling to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. On the other hand, you do have Iran continuing to send support to the Houthis, which was one of the initial reasons Saudi Arabia justified their involvement. But Iran, again, it's sort of this question of, of scale. As, as Trita mentioned, you think about the role that the Houthis are playing in, in devastating the civilian population. It is, it is much, it is minuscule compared to what the Saudis are able to do because they have an air force and they have bombed, bombed for the past seven years, civilian infrastructure. That's what is devastating Yemen. Similarly, the Iranians can send support to the Houthis. At this point, they've they've transferred the knowledge of, of how to how to rig a cruise missile, for example. And the Houthis are able to do this even so even if, you know, Iran, for example, was uh, interested in, in telling the Houthis to stop. At this point, it is not clear that the Houthis would necessarily really listen to Iran. They have the knowledge they need. And, and from Iran's perspective, you know, they, it's, it's useful for them to have this group that needles Saudi Arabia and causes the Saudis to spend hundreds of billions of dollars in Yemen every year on, on what is only an escalating source of threat to them because the Houthis have gotten better at launching these projectiles and, and, for, from the Saudis' perspective, this is a complete strategic debacle because what started as what seemed like a minor issue that they could just go in and handle seven years in is, is now, in fact, a much more major security threat, which is what the Biden administration is using to justify our ongoing involvement, when actually what needs to happen is the Saudis need to withdraw and then the Houthis would stop firing at them. Uh, Trita, why did Biden make this promise in his campaign. Uh, the Americans have never held the Saudis accountable for anything. Uh, you know, even 9-11, even the Joint Congressional Committee led by Senator Bob Graham uh, clearly came out and said the Saudis were directly involved uh, in those attacks. Now, whether he's right or wrong, it's a, he's a fairly authoritative source. And, and, and very, almost nothing was done to follow up on that, uh, after the killing of Khashoggi, the, all kinds of rhetoric and whatever, and then, so why did Biden even make the promise? So I, I think there's a couple of things that have happened. First of all, remember back then, uh, during the campaign, uh, it was good politics to be tough on the Saudis. Take a look at the number of Democratic primary candidates at the time that were criticizing the Saudis. Look at where the grassroots of the Democratic, particularly the progressives were. Keep in mind that two uh, major bills uh, uh, or efforts by the Obama administration uh, in support of the Saudis were blocked and stopped by uh, uh, Congress at the time. And, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia is polling very, very badly on Capitol Hill. So I think there's an element of that. But I think there was also an element of the administration, perhaps back then, thinking in a bit more creative terms. I mean, Biden did not have to go out and say, I'm going to make uh, uh, Saudi Arabia the pariah that it is. Uh, 
Um, he was very clear about the manner in which he was going to be very tough on Saudi Arabia and, and perhaps was a bit motivated, of course, by the major uh, bear hugs that the Trump administration was giving the Saudis. What I think has happened since then is that the, the folks at the NSC have been trying to chart out what their strategy is going to be in a broader sense. Uh, and instead of going back to what they originally were thinking, which was to begin some significant withdrawals from the Persian Gulf, instead, the focus on China has led them to a view in which they believe keeping the alliances that the United States have or partnerships that it has is going to be a key element and asset in the broader competition with China. As a result, we're going to go back to what Brett McGurk in the NSC is talking about, back to the basics of our Middle East policy. Do away with what he called the excesses, such as regime change wars and efforts to transform the region, and just focus on strengthening alliances. Keep in mind, in Washington, D.C., strengthening alliances, standing by our allies, is seen as interests per se. It's seen as an all-good thing. So that's the language they've been using, but I think it's also the thinking that they've been using. Well, if we put that at the center of our foreign policy, strengthening our alliances, standing by our allies, well, frankly, we're going to see pretty much the same foreign policy as we've seen before, even if we manage to avoid some of the excesses, such as Iraq invasion and things of that nature. Those are, at the end of the day, outgrowths, logical outcomes of that same very basic foreign policy. But it means that by putting our allies uh, and, and the alliances at the center, we're going to be following the lead of these so-called allies and partners. And that's very much benefiting the Saudis right now. They want the United States to support them in, in Saudi Arabia, in, in Yemen. And their card that they're playing against the United States is, well, if you don't, we're going to slowly but surely move closer to closer to China. And because of the overall objective is to have this competition with China, we're willing to not only give a lot, but probably increasingly give more than what we've given in the past to very, very reckless allies or partners such as Saudi Arabia. So my theory is that if that is where the thinking of the administration is on this issue, this is probably just the beginning. We might see much worse than just this. I, uh, I was looking the other day at Chinese arms exports. Uh, and 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 the, one of the growth areas for Chinese arms sales is Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, uh, and, and I would expect the Saudis are doing that just to sort of tweak the nose of the Americans to say, uh, you know, we do have some alternatives here. I don't know how serious that is, but uh, I take your point here. Uh, and now, uh, can you? If I could say something. Yeah, go ahead. That, yeah. You know, the, the Saudis will go ahead. They will buy missiles uh, or, or technology and other weapons from the Chinese. The Chinese will happily sell them to whoever buys them. But the Chinese are not selling these weapons with an implicit security guarantee in the manner that the United States is. So the United States, in my view, should act with far greater confidence than what the Biden administration is doing. And recognizing that even if the Saudis buy a little bit of weapons and stuff from the Chinese here and there, uh, the Chinese are never going to be a replacement for what the U.S. is to Saudi Arabia. And as a result, the United States should act as the superpower that has far more leverage in this relationship than Saudi Arabia does. Unfortunately, that is not the pattern that we've seen up until this point, uh, up until Biden came into office. And unfortunately, it is uh, continuing to be the pattern that we're seeing right now. However, it isn't part of the issue, too, is, the, is not just the Saudis as customers for arms, but the amount of Saudi money in American corporations 
they're major investors in the financial sector, in the arms sector themselves. They, they, they're big owners of, of, of uh, American companies. So, the, the, you know, you've got this sort of geopolitical picture, but then you have this kind of influence that the Saudis have a kind of at a more direct level in, internally in, in the uh, uh, American politics. Anella, you, you have something on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, by that argument, we should see different policies towards China, given the amount of, of investment that China also has in our economy. And, and yet we're we're continuing to see very bellicose rhetoric uh, aimed at China. I think in many ways, unfortunately, this, this just re reflects more sclerotic thinking that for decades, the United States has given in to Saudi preferences and and has treated Saudi Arabia in, in ways that, that as, as you said, the American people have consistently just found so confusing. Why are we so close to this regime that acts in ways that are so inimical to American values? And for a long time, it had to do with oil, that we are simply so dependent on Saudi oil. There was really nothing else that, that we could do other than try to keep them happy and keep you know, prices low at the pump. But now that that is no longer the case and the U.S exports more oil than Saudi Arabia does, we do not need to continue to be bound by this old pattern of behavior. And unfortunately, I think this does reflect the fact that we we have a president who is elderly and has a certain way of thinking about the role that Saudi Arabia plays for the United States and isn't really thinking hard about how to shift that relationship. Obviously, people will say, well, Saudi, you know, is is remains a very important um, source of oil and that can influence the price and da, 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 da. But I think the point there is just it would be in the U.S.'s interest to continue to move away from dependence on fossil fuel in general and to continue to to bolster our own energy independence and to not continue to pursue policies that that further sort of entrench us with Saudi interests. Unfortunately, another crucial factor to mention here is also Israel and the fact that under the Trump administration, we saw the Abraham Accords. Obviously, Saudi Arabia did not join those accords, but there was there was a lot of, of optimism that they might later. It's something that Mohammed bin Salman continues to coyly hold out that he, he might sign a normalization agreement with Israel. And unfortunately, what we've seen is that the Abraham Accords are essentially a big arms deal. We saw the UAE get F-35s out of them. That deal right now, we're trying to negotiate the terms. Um, but but the point being that it, it did not, in fact, lead to greater peace in the region. It did not in any way address the, the concerns of Palestinians. But it, it, it remains something held up as, as the feather in the cap of the Trump administration and that the Biden administration would also treat it as something very desirable to get Saudi Arabia to sign on and to normalize with Israel. And the fact that Israel's preferences also continue to dictate U.S. policy in the Middle East is also a big source of uh, dysfunction, I would say, or, or not actually pursuing what would be in the interest of the, the security and well-being of the American people. Uh, Trita, wh wh where are the balance of forces now in Congress on, on Yemen? As you pointed out earlier, there actually was some congressional agreement on stopping to fund the Saudis in Yemen. Uh, is, is that still on anyone's agenda? It is. It is. And I think I actually Anel can speak 
more about that. Let me just say that you know the the sentiments on Yemen are still there, uh, and I wouldn't discount that in any way, shape, or form. I think you have you know various factors being involved right now, in which some uh, I think are trying to give the administration. Uh, a bit of benefit of the doubt in the sense that they think that the strategy of the administration is to move closer to the Saudi position um, uh, in order to give uh, MBS a bit of uh, uh, momentum and then use that momentum to provide him with a face-saving exit from the war. This is something that Anel and I have written against. We don't believe it will work that way. If MBS is going to get some momentum, he will use it to expand the war uh, further increase his demands rather than actually uh, taking that face-saving exit. And the only thing that will be the difference is that more Yemenis will die. But some on Capitol Hill, I think, have been willing to give the administration the benefit of the doubt to see whether that strategy works or not. Uh, I think relatively soonish we will see that it won't doesn't work. And then at that point, it will be uh, more relevant perhaps to see, okay, are those very same forces there to put an end to this war? Uh, or uh, have they truly shifted their position and not just given the administration the benefit of the doubt. And now I'm, I'm sure you have tons to add to that. Yeah, go ahead, Anel. Yeah. The, I mean, I think one thing that is a bit unfortunate um, is that we, we saw a lot more action from Congress. And, and it's understandable that the Democrats would push very hard against Trump as a Republican president, such that we saw a successful war powers resolution pass Congress. Uh, in the spring of 2019, which Trump ultimately had to veto. But this would have ended all U.S. involvement in the Yemen war, all sorts of uh, maintenance and spare parts from provision for the Saudi Air Force and, and would have finally ended U.S. complicity in this war. Trump vetoed that. So there's a push now, again, for new war powers resolution, essentially, to say the same thing again. But what we're seeing, unfortunately, is some especially Democrats who were who were so ready to oppose Trump on this, are trying to play along with the Biden administration. As Trita was saying, the, the strategy seems to be that if the U.S. does give the Saudis some more support, then they'll be able to leave Yemen to exit the war in a way that allows MBS to save face. However, as as Trita and I wrote about, what instead we've seen is is this this recent escalation, and that's part of why January is likely going to be such a, a horribly record breaking month for civilian deaths. We saw this recent uh, attack by Saudi Arabia on a prison facility in northern Yemen. Um, just the the levels of violence. A, are, a prison are, facility, but a, a lot of fam migrant families were kept there, right? It's not. Yes. So, right, many of these were non-Yemenis who were killed in this facility. Um, and in general, just the, the strikes on, on Sana'a, the, just the, the ongoing levels of violence, where, again, what, part of what's so frustrating as an observer is you hear the United States condemning the acts of the Houthis, which certainly could deserve condemnation, the Houthis firing drones and missiles at Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But, but the levels of casualties you hear about there are usually zero casualties, one casualty, maybe two, as opposed to in Yemen, where the casualties are you know, 70 people, 80 people, 90 people. And, and that's every that's that's a daily occurrence in, in the casualties. So the the scale is is really just incomparable. Why do you say the Houthis firing a missile at a country they're at war with? I mean, why shouldn't they? <laughs> 
Well, precisely. And this this gets to the fact that if the, the Biden administration redesignates the Houthis as a terrorist organization, it's unclear, not that legal arguments have necessarily uh, governed who the U.S. designates as a terrorist. But again, the, the Houthis are targeting military targets, and that that is a, a legitimate action for a, a military actor to take against a, another enemy military actor. Um, so, I, again, not not that um, the the U.S. has necessarily conducted the war on terror in a way that's really in keeping with with our own laws. Um, but but just in general, we hear the U.S. continuing to condemn what the Houthis are doing, and we don't hear any condemnations for when when the Saudis attack and and the numbers of civilians killed, or the internet being knocked out in Yemen, or you know they're targeting port facilities and airports and and food facilities and hospitals and uh, Yemen is just is just so completely devastated and the fact that sort of the the life of someone in Saudi Arabia or the UAE is seen as so much more valuable than these hundreds of thousands of Yemenis who have already been killed by this conflict. Uh, if I could just add yeah, one comment. Yeah, sure, go, um, go ahead. You know, at, at the end of the day, we have to go down to the, back to the fundamental question. To what extent are the Houthis or anyone else there an actual threat to the United States that then warrants any U.S. involvement, whether it's to arm or to actually fight or provide intelligence um, uh, to anyone in this conflict? There is no such thing. Even when the United States or the Biden administration right now tries to justify it, they're not saying that they're a threat to the United States. They're saying that they're a threat to Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia has invaded Yemen, is interfering there. So it is not, uh, from an international legal standpoint, unjust for the Houthis to strike back at the Saudis, mindful of the fact that they have invaded the country. But I, I think it further also shows that now, if we have a situation in which the Houthi attack against Abu Dhabi actually was targeting the U.S. base. And we don't know for certain if that was exactly what the target was. But if that is the case, well, then it's shown that this logic has now reached its final conclusion, uh, uh, endpoint, which is, well, they weren't a threat before. But after seven years of the United States interfering and siding with the Saudis and providing them with all of these lethal weapons, now they are. How on earth has that made the United States more safe? How on earth is that actually advancing American security? It is not. It's that it shows it's a perfect example of us just blindly siding with any party because they happen to be a security partner without us using any of our own cognitive faculties to figure out, is this really something that we should be doing? Does this make sense? It actually makes us less safe. Because if we have a situation in which the Houthis start attacking the United States on a broader scale, whether it's in the region or however they yet may do so, we have just earned an enmity that didn't exist before. Yes, it's true. They were issuing slogans of death to America. Well, if we're going to say that we're going to go to war with everyone who, you know, uh, shouts slogans here and there in the world, and uh, indeed, we're always going to be at war and it's always going to be at endless wars. Well, there's a lot to a lot of money to be made in endless wars. Uh, just just quickly, where are we at on the Iran agreement, nuclear agreement? Well, the next week or so is going to be quite uh, decisive. It appears uh, the two sides have uh, taken a, a roughly a week break. They're going to be on break no later till Friday of this week, uh, in which they're going back to their capitals to. Make sure that uh, political decisions are made as to how they proceed, which means that there's been some significant proposals put forward that both sides need to react to at this point. 
Um, and uh, there's been a bit of uh, effort to create a situation in which, you know, this is some sort of a climax, a real tough decision needs to be made here. Uh, and if it is made positively, then I think we may be seeing a breakthrough this month. If not, we're going to see a very negative situation in which the United States essentially is hinting at going back to a strategy that the Biden administration itself is saying does not work, has not worked, and has caused us to be in this bad situation, which is this maximum pressure approach of uh, the Trump administration. But also, even if there is a success, and I certainly hope there is, I think there's still a decent chance that it could be, despite what I think was a very, very flawed strategy chosen by the Biden administration, even if that is the case, I think one big difference that we're going to be seeing compared to what came out in 2015 is that back in 2015, once the JCPA was signed, there was a bit of a positive atmosphere. There was a bit of optimism. There was a bit of political will on both sides to dialogue on a range of other issues, perhaps even address certain other concerns that the United States has with Iran and vice versa. Uh, the United States actually pushed for the Iranians to be included in the dialogue on Syria, recognizing that it couldn't be resolved without the Iranians at the table. So we saw that there was an opening for more diplomacy. It didn't end with the JCPA. It started with the JCPA. This time around, even if there is a JCPA, I fear it's going to be in a pretty bad atmosphere, uh, characterized with a lot of mistrust. And if it ever reaches the point in which something can be built upon it, it's probably going to take a while rather than being something that could happen relatively soon. It may end up just being a nuclear non-proliferation arms control agreement and nothing more. You know, we were talking off camera uh, just before we started the interview, and I was talking about this guy Zakharov. Yeah, in the lead up to World War One, he used to sell machine guns to the Germans and then tell the French the Germans have it. So he would sell them machine guns to the French. I mean, how much foreign policy really is shaped by the military industrial complex? I mean, the strategy makes no sense to me at all. Like if China's the big rival, then why is the entire foreign policy seem to be directed at pushing Iran and Russia closer to China? I mean, it makes no sense at all, except it's very good for arms sale. You can justify another trillion dollars of arms sales if you're up against this uh, alliance of Russia, China, throw Iran in, throw half the countries in Latin America might join in. It's, it's, the only rationality seems to be that it's about creating as tense a global situation as you possibly can. Anyway, and now you get the last word. <laughs> Well, that that just reminds me, you know, how much, you know, for the past 20 years, D.C. has been so fixated on terrorism, which you really hardly hear about anymore. But one thing to keep in mind about Yemen is that the U.S. had briefly partnered with the Houthis against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, that they are fundamentally opposed to each other. And so, again, as Trita was saying, it's 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 just the height of irony that that this group that we had previously worked in partnership with now they they perhaps after seven years of of belligerence will actually be, pose a real threat to the United States, whereas before that was that was not at all the case, and we were working with them against terrorists. Um, but you know, as you were saying, the, the the sort of terrorism narrative ran its course. They couldn't milk that for any more lucrative contracts. Whereas you know, put China and Russia together, and you know that'll that'll get you some more money for your military. 
Yeah, you don't, you don't need 14 Ford-class aircraft carriers at something like $14, $15 billion each to fight terrorism. Which is what part of what the Bush administration understood. That's why they weren't all that interested in terrorism. You couldn't rebuild America's armed forces the way the uh, uh, Project for New American Century document called for. If the enemy is people, you know, some terrorists in the Middle East, you need big state enemies if you want big money. Anyway, thanks very much for joining me. Let's do this again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news. And again, don't forget to subscribe and share and donate all, all the buttons.